We all have heroes, people that we admire, people that we respect, people that we would love to emulate. We wish we had their talents and abilities and genius and perseverance. I have a number of heroes. For starters, John Wayne is my hero. Winston Churchill has always been a hero. While growing up, Sandy Koufax and Johnny Unitas were two of my heroes. My pastor, Chuck Smith, has always been one of my heroes. And in a lot of ways, my dad will always be my hero. But the number one hero in my life is Christianity's greatest apostle. His name was Paul. And every time I study the apostle's life and exploits, I get excited. If ever there was a life lived to the fullest, it was the life of Paul. He was a man who burned for Jesus Christ. In terms of physique, Paul was not much. He may have been a super heavyweight spiritually, but physically, he was a featherweight. Paul was a physical peep squeak. Tradition tells us that he was barely five foot tall. There's a third century novel titled The Acts of Paul and Thecla. In it, we find a description of Paul's appearance. It reads, He was small in size, with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built. The man was short and thick. His eyebrows looked like a caterpillar crawling across his forehead. But the description finishes, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. As to physical stature, Paul was a gnat, but when he was measured spiritually, he was a giant. Here was a man who lived long before the age of jet airplanes, long before the days of radio and TV and satellite broadcasts and even the internet. Paul logged most of his frequent flyer miles on foot. In 2015, I hosted a tour that followed Paul's journeys. We spent two weeks on bus, plane, foot, and boat, tracing the man's footsteps. We had 21st century transportation at our disposal, and we still came back to the hotel exhausted every night. Paul had none of our modern conveniences, yet he took the gospel to the whole known world of his day and still found time to write half the New Testament. And realize his successes came despite enormous persecution. Paul encountered difficulties and discrimination almost everywhere he went. In 2 Corinthians 11, he lists his sufferings for Christ. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in coldness and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And you think you carry a heavy load. 
We moan and groan and think we're martyrs when we're mocked at work or at school for reading our Bible. Paul's life makes ours look like a bed of roses. Yet he counted it an honor to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. For more than 30 years, Paul faithfully preached the gospel, and he departed this earth with no regrets. On the eve of his graduation to heaven, he wrote to his sidekick, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And Paul not only preached Christianity, he lived his life for Jesus. Paul practiced what he preached. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, he makes a statement that astounds me. Every time I read it, he said, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you realize what this man's saying? Do what I do, and you can be confident that the Holy God will be with you. Can you make such a statement? Well, maybe at church, while you're on your best behavior, you can. While you're minding your spiritual manners. But what about when you first wake up in the morning? What about at 6 a.m. on Monday in rush hour traffic? Or when your friend stabs you in the back? Or when a coworker cops an attitude? Or when your spouse starts to nag? Or you get handed a pink slip when you walk into work? Right then, right there, can you say, do what I do, say what I say, and the God of peace will be with you? Well, Paul could. I'm telling you, if God's Spirit had in place Paul's statement in the Scripture, I wouldn't have believed him. I would have accused him of being arrogant. People say that a man's greatest compliments come from his enemies. And this was also true of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, in the Greek town of Thessaloniki, an enemy of the gospel referred to Paul and his friends as these men who have turned the world upside down. The very men who wanted to stamp out the gospel had to acknowledge the worldwide impact of Paul's ministry, that he had turned the world upside down for Jesus' sake. Acts 19 tells us the story of the seven sons of Sceva. The account occurs in the colossal city of Ephesus. A man named Sceva had seven sons. They were Jewish exorcists. In Ephesus, they had witnessed Paul confronting the paganism of a region full of the occult. Paul was casting out demons in Jesus' name. These Jews were trying to mimic Paul's miracles, but when they went to copy Paul's methods, the demons spoke out, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? The demon-possessed man attacked them, brutalized them, beat the living daylights out of them. They barely escaped with their lives. It was awful. You know, back when I played high school football, there was one sure way that you knew that you were good, and that's if the other team knew your number. If you were known in the opponent's locker room, you were tough stuff. You knew you were a threat when the other team knew your name. And this was true of Paul. What was amazing about Paul is that he not only was known in heaven, you'd expect that, but he was also known in hell. The demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Paul wasn't just known in the halls of heaven. 
He was known in the gates of hell. Paul's life was anything but boring. It was a spiritual adventure. Paul was a pioneer. He was an overcomer. His life was full of passion and power. And Paul owed it all to an eight-word philosophy by which he lived his life. Paul's life was propelled by a motivating motto. There were eight words that made this man tick, that spurred him on, that lifted him up. He had a philosophy that kept him in his grip. And this morning, this is what I want to share with you. I want to share with you Paul's eight-word philosophy. But before I do, I want us to get up close with Paul. I want you to check out this man in action. For when you're done... I hope that Paul will be your hero too. Turn first with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Paul is on his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas are traveling through the region of Galatia. You know, today, ancient Galatia is the heart of the country of Turkey. It's a mountainous region, which at the time was occupied by backwoods and suspicious people superstitious people. Throughout the region, Paul was opposed by the Jews. The conflict came to a head in the town of Lystra. Well, when Paul and Barnabas entered into the city, there at the gate, they saw a lame man. Paul discerned that this man had faith to be healed. He tells the guy to stand up. Really just that simple. But suddenly the guy not only stands up, he starts to leap and walk. It's a miracle. The pagan people of Lystra think that they've been visited by the Greek gods. Since Paul was doing most of the talking, they called him Hermes, the messenger. Barnabas, they called Zeus. The pagans try to offer them sacrifices, but Paul stops them and he preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. Of course, while all this is happening, Jews who had opposed Paul in the previous towns now arrive in Lystra. They start to mingle with the crowd. While Paul is preaching, his enemies are somehow able to turn the crowd against Paul. The Jews stood up the, stirred up the people into a frenzied mob. One moment they wanted to sacrifice to Paul. The next moment they wanted to make him the sacrifice. They end up stoning Paul with rocks until they assume that he's dead. In fact, his sidekicks drag his body out of town. Years later, Paul would write to the Galatians about the scars that he bore in his body for Jesus' sake. He was referring to this stoning at Lystra. Now picture Paul's pals. They're all huddled around him. They're weeping. They're mourning for their partner in ministry. And I'm sure they're starting to make funeral arrangements. One guy sizes Paul up for a new suit. Someone else grabs his wallet and looks for a number where they can notify the next of kin. Another guy checks his driver's license to see if he's an organ donor. When all of a sudden, we're told in verse 20, read it in your Bible, Acts chapter 14, verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Imagine this. What they thought was a corpse suddenly rises to his feet, kind of shakes himself, wipes the blood and dust off, and announces that he's going back into the city. He's got a sermon to finish. Wow! Talk about courage. 
If it had been me there, I'd be thinking, come on, Paul, you know, it's time for us to move on. You're not exactly welcome in this town if you hadn't gotten the message yet. But Paul won't hear of it. Man, he's got a sermon to deliver. Here is a man who shows perseverance in the face of persecution. Paul is fearless. Here's a believer with a backbone. He didn't expect to get patted on the back for being a Christian. He was living for Jesus in the same world Jesus lived, and they sure didn't pat Jesus on the back. Rather than a pat on the back, Jesus got a scourging and was eventually crucified. Persecution was no surprise to Paul, and when it came, he counted it an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. In fact, later in this same chapter, when he passes back through Lystra, he tells the disciples there in verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You can be sure they listen to his every word. You know, long before Paul got to the point of persecution, far in advance, he settled it in his mind that to stand for Jesus Christ, regardless of the cost, that was his goal. Paul was ready for action. Reminds me of James Calvert. James was a missionary to the Fiji Islands. On Calvert's first trip, the ship captain was nervous about his venture. The captain realized the dangers facing James Calvert. Door-to-door witnessing among man-eating cannibals isn't the safest thing to do. When they invite you over for dinner, that's not a good thing. The captain told Calvert, You can't just walk in among these savages. You'll lose your life. That's when James Calvert replied, We died before we came. Paul had that same attitude. He had long ago counted the cost. Perseverance in the face of persecution. No matter how the world stands in my way, No matter if they put me down or make my path hard or even threaten my life, I won't back down from being what God wants me to be and doing what God wants me to do. Hey, we need this kind of courage. I believe that if Jesus delays his coming, the cost of living the Christian life will rise significantly. Hopefully none of us will ever be asked to die a martyr's death, but other forms of persecution may be ahead. We need to be ready, and we can be ready if we adopt the same eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. But before I reveal his philosophy, I want us to look at another episode from Paul's life. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Paul is now on his second missionary journey. This time, his sidekick is Silas, and they've sailed to the city of Philippi. They start a church there, and they deliver a slave girl from a demon. But again, they run into persecution. Someone trumps up charges against them and brings them before the town magistrates. Well, the trial is fixed, and Paul and Silas are sentenced to a beating with rods. This was a severe Roman punishment. The victims were stripped of their clothes and hit across the back and the buttocks with a bamboo cane, Singapore style. After the torture, Paul and Silas were thrown into the town jail and they were locked into the stocks. 
Usually prisons in towns like Philippi were in the basement of the jailer's house. They were cold and dark and damp and rat infested. The prisoners were chained with iron shackles designed to stretch out their extremities and cause unbearable pain. Now here is Paul and Silas. Remember, all they've done is start a church and deliver a slave girl, and yet they're in excruciating pain. Their backs are pulsating and bleeding. They're hanging from iron chains. Their lacerated backs are rubbing up against the cold stone wall. Hungry rats are nibbling at their toes. There's no rescue in sight. What would you be doing under such circumstances? I'd be complaining. I'd be having one grand pity party. God, why did I do to deserve this? All I did was preach your word. Lord, where are you in my trial? I thought you loved me, Lord. Those would be the questions I'd be asking. But look at the reaction of Paul and Silas. Hey, I'm not making this up, guys. Read verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They're in searing pain, and yet they're singing praise. Can you imagine? Hey, we've seen Paul's perseverance, but here is a peace in the midst of the worst pain. These men are so tuned in spiritually, so latched on to their blessings in Christ, that the physical pain really doesn't matter to them. The change in their circumstances hasn't altered the peace in their hearts. And let me ask you, how susceptible is your joy to changing circumstances? You know, the sad truth is that for most of us, we live in bondage to our surroundings, to our circumstances. As long as our situation goes well, oh, we feel great. But the moment troubles strike, or the moment we're forced to deal with anything unpleasant or inconvenient or bothersome, we get bummed out. We forget the joy we have in Jesus. Hey, I can promise you one thing. Life won't always go the way you plan. Folks will let you down. Bad things do happen to good people. Life can be cold and cruel. And God uses our fallen world and the suffering it produces to grow us spiritually. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's the toughest times when God speaks the loudest. You can't always control your circumstances, but you can control how you react in those circumstances. You can trust God despite your circumstances. You know, the one thing God does promise us is his peace in the midst of our pain. I love Paul's words to the Philippians. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice always. And I love the definition of this word rejoice. It really means to take joy. This is what rejoicing means. It means to take joy. Sometimes joy doesn't just fall into your lap. We have to reach up through the midst of painful circumstances and take our joy from God himself. When we do, he fills our hearts with indescribable peace. And the key to experiencing this peace 
is an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life. And that's what I want to explain to you this morning. I want to explain Paul's secret to living. But first, there's another incident from Paul's life I'd like to share. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. After Paul's third missionary journey, he returned to Jerusalem to fulfill a lifelong dream. He wanted to preach to his fellow Jews. He had actually taken a vow, hoping that his respect for the law might win a hearing in the temple. But as soon as Paul shows his face in the Jerusalem's temple, the place erupts. The angry Jews turn into a lynching mob. They storm Paul. They actually grab him and they drag him out of the temple to stone him. They're beating him as they go. The Roman troops on guard at the north end of the temple, they hear the ruckus and they go to squelch the uproar. They actually rescue Paul from the crowd and they take him to the headquarters, to the fortress of Antonio. They're saving Paul from the angry mob. You'd think Paul would just be glad that he got to safety. But his safety is the last thing on his list of priorities. You see, Paul came to preach Jesus. And thus we're told in verse 40, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew, men, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And he goes on and he shares his testimony. Here was a man who held on to his purpose even while others would have panicked. Paul refuses to lose focus. He didn't forget why he had come to Jerusalem. He came to the temple that day to preach the gospel, and he wasn't going to let a little riot stop him. You know, the problem with some of us is that we start out with good intentions until we feel the pressure. The pressure at work or at home or in our marriage or with our kids. When the heat gets applied, when life gets hectic, that's when we begin to panic. Oh, we leave church on Sunday excited about living for Jesus, but when Monday rolls around, we get distracted. Our good intentions are forgotten. We lose focus and purpose. Paul didn't allow fear or worry or uncertainty or selfish interest to obscure his vision. He never lost sight of his calling and its eternal prize. Reminds me of a story I read about a man named Alden Strait. Alden lived in Iowa. When the situation occurred, he was 73 years old. His eyes were bad, so he couldn't get a driver's license. But that didn't matter to Alden. When he heard that his brother was sick, he was so determined to be by his brother's side that he jumped on his lawnmower and drove 240 miles across Iowa on his lawnmower to be with his brother. Now that's some commitment. That's also a good lawnmower. <laughs> That's not just good intentions, though. That's determination and follow-through. And how do you develop that kind of determination in your life? Well, there's an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life. And if you model that philosophy, you can develop the same determination in your life. I'd like to share with you this morning that eight-word philosophy. But before I do, there's one more episode 
that I'd like to talk about. Let's turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. Chapter 28 opens with Paul recovering from a cruise gone sour. His ship should have wintered on the island of Crete, but rather than dock at Crete, the ship Paul was on set sail in inclement weather. For 14 days and nights, a violent storm drove them 645 miles off course. Their ship eventually sunk off the coast of Malta. Yet through God's miraculous intervention and Paul's careful instructions, the ship's passengers and crew, all of them, all 276, reached the Maltese shore safely. Imagine Paul now. For two weeks, he's been fighting for his life at sea. He's endured a shipwreck. He's had to swim to shore. I'm sure he woke up weak as water. His legs felt like rubber. A fight at sea renders you exhausted. Paul was still recoiling, still trying to recover from his ordeal when he decided to help out building the fire. We're told in verse 3, He was gathering firewood when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. Notice, he's persistent even when he's pooped. You know, if it had been me and I'd just survived a shipwreck, the last thing I'd be worried about was building a fire. I'd be licking my wounds, trying to worry about myself rather than trying to worry about other people, keeping them warm. I'd be hoping someone would minister to me, but not Paul. He's a servant to the very end. I'm sure Paul thought, I'll have all eternity to be comfortable. I've only got a short time to see to it that I'll have plenty of company in heaven. And so Paul starts to serve others. He begins to gather sticks to build a fire. When all of a sudden, as he picks up the wood, a poisonous viper latches onto his hand. The locals see it and they gasp. They expect Paul to drop over dead. But when he survives, they consider it a miracle. Imagine the opportunity this provides Paul to share the gospel. And share the gospel he did. But it all started when Paul chose to be a servant even when he was exhausted. His own limitations, his own weaknesses didn't slow down Paul. His endurance was due to an eight-word philosophy by which this man lived his life. I mean, how do you stop a man like Paul? The answer is you don't. His faith was unquenchable. His witness was undeniable. His stand for Jesus was unshakable. And it was all because of an eight-word philosophy by which Paul lived his life. Would you like to know? What that eight-word philosophy happens to be? Well, to uncover it, I want you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Hey, let's add it all up. Perseverance in the face of persecution. Peace in the worst pain. Purpose while others would have panicked. Persistence even when you're pooped. Hey, this is the way Paul lived. And it was due to an eight-word philosophy. We find it in two verses, verses 20 and 21 of Philippians chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21 of Philippians chapter 1. 
Paul writes, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And here it is. Drum roll, please. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Here are eight powerful words by which Paul lived his life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's supreme desire was not to live or die or anything in between. The burning issue in his life was not his goals and his comfort and his status and his future. Paul's utmost desire was that Jesus would be magnified in his life. If that meant living, fine. If that meant dying, so be it. His one concern was for Jesus to be glorified. During our 2015 Footsteps Tour, it was in the ruins of ancient Philippi that we experienced an incredible privilege. We stood on the mosaic floor of one of the very first church buildings ever erected in history. That octagonal floor dates back to 340 A.D. You see, prior to that time, churches met in homes. But when the Roman emperor Constantine embraced Christianity, believers all across the empire started to meet openly and publicly. And apparently, those in Philippi were particularly bold. They were among the very first to come out of the shadows into the public square. I'm sure at first there was still some residual hostilities toward Christians. Persecution was still a threat. But the Philippians seemed to be among the very first Christians to come out into the open. They actually drew a target on their backs. It was as if they were saying, come and get us if you want, but we stand for Jesus. It seems that they had read Paul's letter to them. And they had adopted his motto, for to them to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul understood that a person isn't ready to live until they're first ready to die. When an author writes a novel, he knows in the beginning how he wants the book to end. It's impossible to develop the plot without knowing where you want the road to lead. And Paul approached life this way. He settled the ending first. He dealt with the final chapter of his story from the outset. Thus he was free to tackle the rest of his life head on, pressing forward, never looking back. If Paul lived, great. It was life with his Savior. If Paul died, greater still. It was life with his Savior, minus the rocks and rods and mobs and persecution. Here's verse 21 in another translation. It reads, living means opportunities for Christ and dying. Well, that's better yet. I taught this message once when afterwards a man told me that he had read Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 from a German Bible. And the German Bible had rendered it, to live is Christ, to die is more Christ. I think I like that best. To die is more Christ. 
for sure to Paul. Jesus was all that mattered. Yes, he loved his family and friends and colleagues. Yes, he loved the churches that he had planted. But far out distancing all of those concerns was his love for Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer once wrote, It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. The question that we all should be asking ourselves today is this. What is it that we want most? To Paul, Jesus was not just the top of a long list of priorities. He was the list. Nor was he just a slice of the pie of life. No, Jesus was the whole pie. Every other concern in his life was secondary to bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Paul had eliminated all of the rivals. There was no other attraction competing for his affections. His whole heart belonged to Jesus. Yes, he had family and friends and church and work, but everything else in Paul's life gained its significance as it related to Jesus. Here's a great southern expression you'll understand. Paul placed all his eggs in one basket. Jesus is all that matters in the long run, and he's what makes everything else matter in the short run. When our goal is to bring glory to ourselves, man, we become vulnerable to a host of problems and difficulties. You know, it doesn't take much for my plans to get upset. Doesn't take much when I'm living for myself to be trapped in fear and worry. Doesn't take much for me to become a victim to situations beyond my control. When you're living for yourself, a lot can go wrong. But when I adopt Paul's philosophy to live as Christ and to die as gain, I'm not worried about me, my image, or my comfort, or my convenience or my status, or my success, no matter what happens to me, as long as Christ is glorified, I win in the end. If I live in a hut or live in a mansion, if I'm a CEO or a grocery bagger, if my team wins by five touchdowns or it loses by five touchdowns, hey, if my life points people to Jesus, I'm the winner. It doesn't matter if anyone else notices me. Trust me, God in heaven will notice. See, Paul was caught up in someone far greater than himself. He could go anywhere. He could do anything. He could make any sacrifice needed to glorify Jesus. Paul gave up his whole life for Jesus. But ironically, no one ever lived a fuller and richer life than Paul. As Jesus promised, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Hey, if your life is boring and dull, if it's lost its thrill and adventure, if it's choked with worries and fears that won't matter a hundred years from now, don't you think it's time to change? Remember what I told you earlier. It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have other things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. Hey, what is it that you want more than for Jesus to be glorified in your life? Jesus died for you. He loves you with a boundless love. He wants your life to count. 
He has a heaven full of joy and blessing and excitement in store for you. What better way to spend your one and only life that you've been given than to live it for the glory of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you to fill in the blank this morning. To live is blank. How would you fill in that blank for your sake, in your case? How would you answer? To live is work, or success, or friends, or kids, or sports, or sex, or hobbies, or popularity, or security. Work that lacks fulfillment, is that how you want to live your life? Success that's only temporary, you sure that's a good investment? Friends that come and go, kids that grow up and leave home, sports that you can't play forever, sex that leaves you empty and ashamed, hobbies that grow boring, popularity that's fickle, security that's just an illusion. Are these things really worth your one and only life? Listen to Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 1. One more time, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Make that philosophy, make that your philosophy. Walk in Paul's footsteps and like Paul, your life will become a grand adventure. Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning. And Lord, I pray that we all would look at our lives today.